one, two, three. Mila Falls, you're very welcome along to the Brian and Kieran Warfield podcast, the ramblings of two Irish balladeers, featuring Brian Warfield of the fierce and mighty Wolf Tones and his son Kieran, that's me, of the band Catalpa and also of the bandwagon bus Dublin's only musical ballad tour on wheels. So sit back, relax, grab a tea, coffee, beer or wine or whatever takes your fancy as we go rambling through life's misty foggy dew, through stories, songs, history, politics, life on the road. And just a general bit of crack. Okay, so this is an unplanned episode that uh, we felt that we had to do after uh, the online abuse and death threats that the McLean family, both James, his wife Erin, and James's brother, uh, have been getting of uh, over the last couple of days and or week. Um, so, firstly, I would like to dedicate this uh, episode to Kenny Murdoch, who would have been a, a member of the Chris Confederation of Republic of Ireland Supporters Clubs and also a good Cliftonville man. And I just learned this morning that uh, Kenny had uh, untimely passed away uh, last night after he had posted about Celtic. So he was a good Celtic man. I last was with him at the Treble Treble Cup final. Um, so we dedicate this episode to uh, Kenny and uh, Dad. What you uh, And the Lord of Mercy on his soul. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A good soul too. Yeah, I was a lovely man. Absolutely lovely. Devastated to hear about the news. And a good football man. Really good. There's a great picture of Kenny in, in France in 2016 when Ireland scored the winner against... Uh, um, Italy and Kenny, he was in floods of tears. So, very emotional man, and we re- re- enjoyed the day out with him in, in Celtic Park. That day, Ireland were playing a they were playing a, a friendly against Celtic the next day. So he got to see both games. With him. Yeah, yeah, sad. Yeah, really sad. So condolences to the Murdoch family. And uh, anyway, we'll get on with it. And uh, so you, you've. Uh, been reading about James McLean and the abuse that he's been getting and death threats, you know. It's he's been getting that for a while and, and it's a shame, a lovely, lovely man. And uh, we had the pleasure of meeting him uh, up in Derry uh, at the, one of our shows there in the Millennium Forum. And he came along and his brother came along and his wife was there. There's lovely, lovely people. And it's a shame, you know, Irish people have always been a target at some stage or another for, you know, for uh, abuse in England. Um, we took it for so so long, the paddies, the paddy joke, you name it. Uh, it's, and it goes back centuries. You just didn't start immediately because, like, years ago, they, they sort of uh, looked down upon the Irish uh, as a, a lesser people than they were. And they're forgetting the fact that uh, we... Taught them how to read and to write. We gave them education for free. Brought them all to Ireland, gave them books, put them up for free. And uh, 
you know, gave all that education to them. And you could see in the Anglo-Saxon books and everything else how much they were influenced by the Irish um, monks that were over in England and had started uh, many of the monasteries there. The Reverend Bede, indeed, uh, grants uh, the great uh, Irish uh, monks for, you know, giving education to the country. So... You know, now they come back and they, they, they look down upon us as a lesser people and uh, they had no right to do that. Just terrible situation and uh, abuse and racism at its greatest. You can see that in all the old books. You know, you have the image of the big paddy being a big tug looking. Yeah, they, it was, they, they had this idea, you know, when, uh, when Darwin's theory of evolution came about that the Irish were the in-between between the monkey and the, and the real people, the, the Brits. You know, it was just as graceful that, that, that uh, the abuse that we took over the years. James uh, first went to England to play football. He, played, he signed for Sunderland in 2011. And I guess it was not long after that when he first refused to wear the poppy and, and the, when it came up to... Uh, the eleventh of November, and I've been in in England when that's uh, when that's going on. Actually, I was in Scotland one time. I was in Edinburgh uh, with work, and I'd say I walked maybe a half a mile through Edinburgh, and I'd say I got stopped about ten times to ask me what I, I see. You don't have a poppy. Would you like to buy one? Yeah. <laughs> so it was a constant, constant barrage of. I was like, no, I don't wear a poppy. I don't, uh, I'm Irish, I don't feel comfortable wearing a poppy, blah, blah, blah. And it's everyone's, up, you know, it's up to each individual whether they yeah, want to wear one. It, it would be grand if if, if it was by choice. Mm. And I've no, nothing against that by choice, but the forced wearing of a poppy is just uh, beyond the pale for me. Because, like, I think when, years ago, I just wrote a, a piece about it. And, uh, you know, I just read a bit of it um I had two of my grandfather's brothers and a brother-in-law killed in the First World War. I don't want them to remembered to be remembered by a campaign that is arrogant, chickenistic, divisive and smells of British imperialism. It is not a democratic to it's not undemocratic to force people to wear the symbol that for many is one of aggression. These poor brave men were thrown into this massive theatre of death and destruction, put in harm's way, forced into suicide charges to certain death, died from the effects of mustard gas, or they lost their nerve and broke down facing a firing squad. Believing they were bringing freedom and liberation to small nations from oppression. The freedom they fought for, for, for is flaunted by the... Uh, by what can only be described as an aggressive campaign of a paper poppy, hawk, hawking, using the British interests and loyalists as propaganda tools. Now, you, you look at the television or anything like that, football, anywhere you go, the poppy is forced upon people whether they like it or not. I see people on television and nobody, no, nobody objects. And, uh, you know, if that happened in Ireland and you had a campaign in Ireland where everybody had to wear an Easter lily um, uh, around Easter time, there'd be uproar from everywhere. Uh, but yet they accept this fact that the, the poppy can be forced upon people whether they like it or not. And James McLean, I think he's probably one of the only 
I'm one of the few, if uh, not the only, that uh, um, rebelled against this. And this forced and racist policy uh, against uh, Irish people must stop. And James has a good reason for not wearing the poppy. Like, you know, and so it, are the Irish, yeah. I know, I know that, but, but James has a very good reason being from, you know, coming from Derry and what happened in Derry. And he's written to, I think it was when he was with Wigan, he wrote to, uh, what was the chap that owned Dave something or Anyway, the owner of Wigan and explained his reason for not wanting to put the poppy on his jersey, yeah. you know. And since then, like, he's... He's been hounded like myself and Phelan wrote the song No Poppy No Anthem. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. Great song. Thanks, Dad. Sure, look, we'll have a listen to it now and then we'll come back to the chat. I was born in the Cregan in old Derry town, where civil rights protesters are shot by the crown. Though unarmed and innocent, these people that died were dishonored in death. By propaganda and lies No puppy, no anthem My name's James McLean I won't face your union jack For your God save the Queen When a bloody Sunday apology Took 38 years And events of that day Still brings dirty town to tears Well I paid for my hometown And soon got the call Crossed over to England To play league football I then moved to Wigan, no poppy I'd wear To stand with my people and the pain they still bear My reasons for doing so came from the heart I was vilified and threatened, this was only the start No poppy, no one from my name, James McLean I won't face your union jack for your God save the Queen When a bloody Sunday apology took 38 years And events of that day We wrote it, I don't know, three, maybe four years ago. I think it was James had signed for West Brom. And West Brom were on a, a pre-season tour in New York. And they were playing New, 
I think because James was, was either going to sign for New York Red Bulls or West Brom, and he went with West Brom. But they, West Brom did a se- pre-season tour over. I'm not can't remember who they were playing, but at the beginning of the match, the God Save the Queen was played, and all the players from Wigan or from West Brom, sorry, uh, turned towards the Union Jack flag that was in the ground, mm-hmm. and James turned away. Didn't turn his back on it. Now he turned sideways. And he bowed his head and he said after, you know, people then slated him, said that he, he ignored the British national anthem and blah, blah, blah. And he got terrible press over it, like, you know, which I think probably stoked the flames of hatred against him. Like, you know, where you have, like, what happened this week, a 14-year-old young lad saying to James's brother that he would want to tie James in a chair and burn his family in front of him. Like, you know, what kind of 14-year-old... Terrible, vicious stuff for a 14-year-old... Uh child i mean how can he even think about that so obviously the parents aren't watching or you know there's an inbuilt uh, hate in the family already that uh, inspires this young lad to say such awful things about such nice people you know it's a bigger world now a global world and we must accept and we do accept uh, you know other points of view in ireland and we, there are many but uh, it seems like uh, and i think that's why Brexit, Brexit came about was that the British can't uh, can't take other people and uh, be um, be respective of their ideas and uh, of their opinions, and that certainly is true in James's um, case. But it's not all British people, Dad. Like it's only a, a small number. Of oh, people. of course, it's not. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's sixty million people in England, and you know. A very very small minority of them are uh, would be vicious and uh, angry against the Irish people, but uh, you know it's it's the way it is, and uh, we have to try and change it. Yeah. Like I've come up against the what was called the old National Front uh, British hooligans in both Germany in eighty eight, show me age here, and Italy in nineteen ninety, <laughs> and then. In Germany in 88, we got chased out of a pub that we were in after we'd beaten England. And uh, we got glasses, big pint stein glasses thrown at us. In Italy in 1990, we got a boat over to Cagliari, over to Sardinia from Sicily. It was an overnight boat and there was no alcohol on it. There was no alcohol. Alcohol was banned 24 hours before the game. And when we got into Cagliari... There was nothing open because there was the British had stabbed uh, two locals the night previously uh, to death. A trouble, yeah, yeah. the British supporters, and so we we were just hanging around the town. We couldn't even get a bottle of water where we were. So there was like a little cathedral on top of a hill, and there was a little football ground down below. And we started playing football with some English fans. It was a great bit of crack, great bit of banter. Mm-hmm. The cameras were coming around. And then as the Day went on, it got warmer and warmer. The match was late that night and uh, it was, a, I think it was eight o'clock kickoff. Uh, now, bear in mind, we had no food, no water, no, couldn't get anything like that whole day. Right, right. And uh, we were sitting on the, on the bank. It was a sloping bank up to the cathedral and there was a few other lads from Blessing and that we, we had met. And it was mad because it was before the time of mobile phones, like, you know. Mm. So we just arranged to meet. Like we met this guy from Australia. We said in, in Rome, we said, we meet you at 3 p.m. on such and such a day in the GPO in Rome. 
didn't know if there was one GPO or two GPOs, just a point of place. And we actually met him there, but we actually met the lads on the quay coming off a boat from Sidavecha. Uh, and we all, anyway, we all got together. But as, as the evening went on, it got closer to the match. A lot of Irish families had congregated onto the bank and were having picnics. You know, these people that had flown in for the day. And uh, there was a bit of banter and great crack. And then uh, we could hear this chanting coming up the road. And uh, we all had our shoes off and were relaxing. Like, you know, I had no runners on or nothing. And then I looked out and I'd just seen all these Union Jacks coming up and I could hear no surrender to the IRA. And I said... Well, this is not gonna, <laughs> this is not going to end well. So I went back and I started putting on my runners. At the lads, we put on our runners, <laughs> and uh, get so, out of here. So as uh, as they got closer, it got noisier and noisier, and all the families, like everybody, was just sitting there, and they all stopped, all in unison, faced us, and started giving the Nazi salute, which I was going like, yeah, that's mad. Yeah. Like you know, all these English people giving the Nazi salute with their hand up, and uh, this ringleader came out and he started going you fucking know you're a bastard you got my brother and you won't get me and all this and one of the lads from blessing and leaky lennon he was <laughs> leaky was and he he shouted out they got the wrong brother <laughs> <laughs> and with that there was an absolute just they just charged that it's like you know and i remember i had a flag I had a lovely flag and a lovely um scarf that i'd brought to germany in 88 but by Jesus, did I not collect that? <laughs> I dumped yeah. that hill as fast as I could. Yeah. And I mean, it was a steep hill, but there was families there that I'm pretty sure, you know, would have got... Injured in the... Yeah, hill, like young families, say, like, yeah. you know, we just we just turned and ran, like, you know, and yeah. my last abiding memory of it was going over the... Go, go jumping over this car, over the bonnet of this car, trying to get away, and Leaky Lennon going, regroup, regroup. <laughs> yeah, well, good job, you're able to run. If I was there, probably, <laughs> probably wouldn't be able to run. But we had it in Dublin, too, you know, in Lansdowne Road, when we saw it. 95. Yeah, oh, when yeah. the match was stopped because of the yeah. uh, the, the riot by the British fans yeah. in, in the stand. You know, I couldn't believe it. I, I was there... I was I was looking from the opposite side, and you know it's just unbelievable. I was in the South Terrace. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable, and um, you know the throne of chairs and everything else like that. So, you know, what's it all about? You know, is it about we're still the supreme uh, leaders of the world, and uh, you know we won the first war, or the second world war, and all this kind of thing? You know, they forget that they didn't win it on their own. Yeah. <laughs> I know they 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 they're arrogant. The, yeah, they taunt the German fans as yeah, well. You know, they're but. arrogant about it. You see. So yeah, bringing us back to poor James, James McLean is just an awful, um, an awful time for him. But because, also for his wife Erin, like, yeah. that's an awful thing to have to go yeah. through when you you know you're, you're you're trying to bring up a young family in a strange country. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's hard and difficult enough, and uh, you know to be unwelcome uh, is makes it even more difficult. So, like, it has to be brought out, and I, the courage of uh, the, uh, the uh, McLean family just is unbelievable in the, in spite of all this. So, I I would. I take my hats off to them and think, you know, they're great people. They need your support. They need their support. And we give it to them wholeheartedly uh, because that's um, that's what they deserve. Yeah, agreed. You're here. Have you come across any, have you had any death threats in your time? Oh. Or in Wolf Tones <laughs> time as- if you go back the years before the internet, yeah, we did. But, uh, you know, we were very lucky. We had a couple of 
narrow, narrow escapes. Of course, we had uh, going into uh, various gigs in the six counties. Like one particular gig, I think it was um, we were in um, we were in uh, County Down in Ross Trevor, I think it was, and we were playing a gig at a GA club, probably about four or five miles outside of town. And they, you know, we 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 as normal go for a pint or two before the gig and a sandwich. And we asked, you know, was there a pub nearby we could go? So they took us to a, they took us to this pub, but we weren't allowed to in, into the the bar area. They took us to the kitchen, and they said that uh, there was some uh, police force uh, and security people they called them uh, in the front bar, and there was police and soldiers and all kinds of guys there, and we could hear the hahan and the. The revelry going on that was in the background as we were having a couple of pints in in the kitchen. Later on, we went on down to the gig anyhow, and uh, later on, during the night, I heard a lot of screeching of cars and activity outside the tent. It was a big marquee. But uh, after the gig, I was called over, and uh, the guy that was running the gig, or one of the committee, said, uh, you can't go home by the main route and I said, why? He said, yeah, because there's a block down there, he said, that's going to get you. And uh, we're going to take you over the mountains and we'll show you the way after that. So up we go after the gig, pack out all this stuff, up we go up the mountains in the morning. We reach the top after some great struggle with our old comma van. <laughs> and uh, we reach the top and uh, they point the road to us and just say, keep going straight across those hills down into Warren Pint and then head for Newry and you'd be grand. The the blockage had gone at some stage, they told us, but uh, that was the way and uh, they must have been in contact with somebody. We got down to Warren Pint and uh, with some struggle because the car, uh, the van overheated and we had to get bog water and pee in the bloody thing and everything to keep us going over the hill. When we got down to Warren Pound, into Newry, our driver, Vincent Clare, decided, he, he never made a turn. He always kept going straight, no matter where you were going. You had to keep an eye on him because you never know. He'd, he'd keep going straight. You could end up anywhere. But uh, I, I kind of took an eye out and to watch over him, and he was gone heading for Armagh. So he never made a left for Dublin. <laughs> so eventually we got back to Dublin. Anyhow, the next day I got a phone call from Oliver Barry, who was our manager, and he said uh, there had been uh, death threats against the Wolf Tones and that uh, we weren't, the special branch uh, had told us not to go north and uh, that uh, we were to cancel any gigs we had for the, the, the weekend coming, which we did, and... Uh, on that following Wednesday, the Miami was shot by the Glen Ann gang. So I thought, and I still think and believe to this day, that the people who were drinking in the front of the bar where we were having our pints uh, were the Glen Ann gang. And uh, because it was a mix of police and UDR and army personnel. And so when we did get back anyhow... Um, as you know, the Miami were killed and it stopped people going north. But uh, we kept going north, but the way we did it was quite differently. We we were met at the border by, you know, by people. We were split into two or three cars or whatever. 
and sometimes in vans and sometimes in a hay truck. And we were brought to the gigs and um, we were brought back. At one time, we were brought in, Jerry Adams, I think, had a, an armoured car. It was a big American car with steel doors and uh, bulletproof windows. And we were on our way, they were taking us back to the border and we stopped by um, by a block, uh, an army block. But uh, <clears throat> when, we, when we stopped, um, you know, the, the guy that was driving the car, he was a, gra- a very funny guy, but the guy that stopped the car, he yaps he, he the way to the money and we, we head off straight. When we get past the checkpoint about four or five miles down the road, he reaches under the seat and pulls out a revolver. <laughs> Uh, I said, Jesus, if we had to be in with that, we'd be all in long cash. But, uh, uh, the, you know, we had loads of those um, experiences. And, uh, you know, it was it was scary, but we are young and maybe we thought we were invincible. I had loads of those stories and, uh, you know, of all the different things that happened. But, you know, it was always the threat of um, violence against the band. At one stage, we used to travel as the Blue Corps Show Band. And uh, the Blue Corps Show Band didn't exist, of course. But um, we called it the Blue Corps Show Band because we came from Bluebell and Inchi Corps. <laughs> and we'd all remember it. But, uh, yeah, so many a time we were taken out and, you know, the gear thrown on the side of the road and they'd pop off and then, it's, you know, they put, we had to put it back ourselves. But... Uh, yeah, there was always that overhead threat uh, on you, and <clears throat> we never ever told our wives that we were going north. We'd say, we're going, where are you tonight? We're down in Cork or somewhere, and uh, just in case you get scared. Well, I'm fascinated that Jerry Adams had a, an armoured car, and I wonder what he ever done with it. You were the few <laughs> I'm well, sure. It's not an armoured car like you see in a military, I know, yeah, I know a military vehicle. Yeah. It, was a, it was a big American car. I guess it was owned by the Mafia at one stage. I don't know, but uh, Steel played it, bulletproof. And, uh, you know, we felt safe in it anyhow. But we were very lucky that had they found the, 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 the gun in it, uh, we wouldn't have been safe anymore. We would have done time. wonder did he get it from NORAD. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing that fascinates me is that, uh, did you say you got put into the back of a hay truck? Yeah. <laughs> I can't picture the four of you sitting in the back of the no, hay no, truck with I, banjos and guitars having a having a sing song all the way up the valley. No, you see, they they went with the gear. The gear went separate. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm only having the, the gear. The gear could always get away. The gear didn't have a. The gear didn't have any. They never knew whether the gear was Republican or Loyalist. Right. <laughs> so you didn't put any. Tricolour stickers. No, there was like no that. stickers. No, nothing. No, 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 no. <laughs> nothing like that, you know. And uh, I often hear, like, you know, or see on the on Facebook and stuff like that, that, oh, the Wolf Tones never went north. They never supported the people of the north during the Troubles. And I'm, I tend not to answer these things, things on Facebook, you know, and some of it's from other people that play rebel music. I, tend, I, I read it, but I don't answer it because... I don't want to give them any more oxygen to it, to that argument. But I know from a, being a young lad that you used to travel quite regularly up north. And I remember traveling, oh, up, traveling yeah. up, and, up with you a couple of times to it, yeah. you know, and 
been terrified, like haven't done it, like, you know, yeah, and I especially mean, like you always went up around the time of the 12th, like, you know, because you wanted to support yeah. the people of the North. You well, know. we were up there during the UUC strike, uh, the Ulster Union strike. And I remember uh, we were playing in our bowl and uh, we we arrived up to the place and as usual we had uh, to play there a lot and uh, it was always full up with people and everything else like that. We were welcomed in anyhow and uh, at the end of it, when the gig was over, um, all the all the staff left and they said, now don't forget, close the door when you're leaving. <laughs> so they were scared out of their wits. But like uh, we were probably a bit uh, naive about the whole scene, but we used to plan different ways of going and different ways of coming. And the way we used to plan it, that uh, if there was a big heavy Protestant town or something like that, uh, we'd we'd leave um, we'd leave that out of our trip and go around some other way, and we'd get to our destination. And then on the way back, we often went to Donegal just to get to. You know, made the trip longer and everything else, but at least um, you were safe from uh, um, from attack. But we, you know, I was up in Derry one time, and um, in Derry, um, I was told by some friends that uh, never stop, never to stop for a um, what you, what you would think is a, like a. a, 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 a um, British Army Patrol? A, a Brit, not a British Army Patrol, but a UDR or something else like that, like the Glenan gang had set up. And I said, how would you know them? He said, well, they're small. He said, there's not, you know, there might be two or three or whatever. Wouldn't be the British Army have trucks and uh, everything else out. Uh, so coming back from Derry and I went through Oma, I'm driving an old Mercedes and uh, I see... A guy cranking a little light from left to right, a little red light from left to right, and uh, uh, this was ju- during the time of the murder triangle. And I see the light going from left to right, and I said, "I don't like this." So I put my foot down, and I went right through the um, to the uh, checkpoint. About four guys: two guys jumping one way, two guys jumping the other way. And I just ran on. And Tommy was in the car beside me in the passenger seat. He said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? I said, I just broke a checkpoint. He said, well, don't fucking stop now. <laughs> We're all dead. And I swear to God, I could still, as I went through that checkpoint, I could feel the hairs of my neck standing up on edge because at any stage, I thought if that was a real checkpoint, they'll have fellas on the hill and everything else like that. And uh, after I broke it, it would have shot. But obviously it wasn't a, a, a real checkpoint and it could have been a set up by one of those awful gangs from Pound Corp Horta Down. You just don't know. Do you, I mean, he, d- he didn't know, but yeah. I mean... He, you weren't he, stopping to find it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wasn't going to stop there and ask, hey, you, UDR, UVF, <laughs> what the hell are you? No, you couldn't do that. But like, people, like it's it's not that you want to go out there and boast about it. I mean, of plaques and all kinds of things that, uh, you know, given from people who were in gratitude for the Wolf Tones performance, for raising money for um, for prisoners' dependence, uh, which we did uh, all the time. And probably we did uh, for Joe Cahill, we, we, we did probably one or two a year for him. 
And then the prisoners' dependents got a load of uh, things. I have a plaque over there signing by all the uh, prisoners in Port Leash. And we did a concert for all the prisoners there and probably raised, um, you know, a couple of thousand uh, pounds that went to their dependents. So, like, you know, we're we're not looking for glory. We never go boast about it or do anything about it. People want to think we never went, Lord, I don't care. Yeah, you were just doing it. I know the truth. I was just doing what I needed to do at the time. So a bit like James, you were doing a job, you did a professional job of it, and you'd go on sports. Yeah, well, that's it. play where you needed to be at the time, yeah. That's right, yeah. And, you know, I I could never have let the people down in Belfast or Derry because... um, I knew from the early stage what they went through. Like, we were up there in Belfast on the Falls Road playing in 1963-64. And I was at the Flau up there, I think it was in 1965. And uh, we knew how they felt and how they felt so isolated from the rest of the Irish people. Uh, in as much that, the, you know, they had been born out in 1922 and, you know, once again, during the Troubles, Bombay Street, um, you know, the awful things that happened to the uh, nationalist community up there needed support. And um, we gave it that support. And remember, Joe Cahill came down in the early days uh, when there was no IRA or no provisional IRA. And he had no way of protecting the people in in the falls or the Natchez community in any part of Belfast. And he came down and some of the special branch in Dublin gave him guns. You know, it was just the way it was. And then, you know, I think the government of Ireland got very frightened with the retaliation of the loyalists towards Dublin and other places. And as much that um, they felt the British were collaborating with them and they could devastate uh, many parts of Ireland if they wanted to. Yeah, that's, the so, Dublin Manor and Bombing has been a... Yeah, it was, it, was a threat, it was a threat to Dublin to stay out of this or we're going to kill you or going to ruin your country. And we were trying to develop a country at the time into a into a, the country that it is today with industry and, and science and, uh, you know, computer companies and everything else. So it was a tough decision, I guess, for them. And sometimes they run down for it, but it's a decision they had to make. And uh, I think, you know, most of the Irish people supported um, the people in their struggle for freedom. Mm. I remember going up to the Ardine with you uh, one time, a good few years ago, it was just after the what happened in the Holy Cross School. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And uh, we went into this little bar. Myself and yourself, you brought me through these little wine, little streets, mm. back streets, and we ended up in this small little pub. And uh, myself and yourself sat in the. It was like a little barry, loungy place, like off from the main bar. Yeah. And uh, a couple of lads had seen you in the in the bar, and and. Uh, you, we went to get two pints and it was two pints sent out to us and paid for and then there was another two sent out to us and paid for. <laughs> but it's just amazing the generosity and they were just more or less thanking you for coming up and and supporting. And I remember going in and Father Troy was running that gig, I think, was it? Uh, it well, wasn't it was, him, it was the community itself. But he, yeah. was, sitting in the, he was sitting in the, in the he, back He, end, he came know, there all yeah, the time. Yeah. It was part, very much part of that yeah. community. And it was amazing 
amazing gig, like, you know, and I, I, having been up at the Fela Festival up there the last couple of years, like, it's just brilliant, like, just to see the passion and the, the you know, the emotion of, of the people that are, are there. And it's just getting younger and younger every... Yeah, every, well, I think, I think it is that, you know, the Wolf Tones never forgot the people of Belfast and the people of Belfast will never forget the Wolf Tones. Mm. And, uh, you know, in as much that... Um, that uh, not alone in by going up there, but in song, mm. you know, songs like Joe MacDonald that, you know, changed minds all over the world. Yeah. I have to say that, like, people came up to me, people crying with that song, you know, and uh, people, I remember the first time we we sang it in San Francisco was the first time we sang it. And it, it was in huge big hall in San Francisco, about 2,000 people. And... Um, we sang that song and it was the first time we sang it. So we weren't too sure what way it was going to go. And um, Tommy sang it as usual in his great uh, tenor voice. And uh, my friend Jerry Murray was doing the, the lighting. And the lighting guy turned around to Jerry and said, I've never felt emotion like this in my life. He said, this room is saturated in emotion. He said, I never felt anything like this. He says, what way do you want to be to finish this song? And Jerry said, just bring the stage to darkness. And um, anyhow, we finished the song. The stage went into darkness. And it was about, I, I think, about 20 seconds of silence. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, nobody's clapping. At this. And then it erupted into the, a massive applause that must have last 10 minutes. People stood up applauded in every way they could and it was just very emotional Imagine. and on the same trip then we we got up to uh, we were up in Toronto and we were playing this gig in Toronto and there was a black guy stagehand at the back he does curtains and all that kind of stuff and uh, we finished the song and I went off to get something or other and uh, he's at the side there and he said my God, he said, you wrote that song? I said, yeah. You got to tell that to the world, man. He said, that's the best song you ever heard. But, you know, and that's the that's the effect that song had on people. You know, we went all over the world with it and it got standing ovations, yeah. in, in even in places like Disney World in Paris. Yeah, but it really tells a story. But for some reason, uh, Dad, I can't get that image of you driving through uh a checkpoint. I'm getting an image almost of Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> well, I swear to God, I went through it at a hundred miles an hour, and that's for sure. Because I won't, go, I've, you know, I, I've something in there that's inbuilt for survival, and that felt like a survival move. And that's what it was, I guess, because it, they wore me up in Derry. It was a couple of, um, you know, guys who were attached some way to the Republican movement, and they said. Uh, they said, never, ever stop for a dodgy checkpoint. Mm. Well, good good yeah. call. It was, yeah, a, it was a good call. Yeah. And I took a chance because, as I said, if it had been a real checkpoint, there would have been fellas up on the hill or something and bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And even even now, like when I drive through, like we were playing up in Bundoran and uh, one time I decided to take Google Maps advice on quickest way back to Dublin which wasn't exactly so anyone listening never do that I ended up going over the hills and through through uh, parts of Fermanagh oh yeah that's a, they're bad roads yeah oh, 
yeah. over this hill, like Phelan was fast asleep. Phelan normally cuts out and goes to sleep. I do all the driving. And uh, I just go, Jesus, where the hell am I? Like, you know, but I, I always think back then to when you guys must have been up there during the trip, like, you know, to go them back roads and how small they were, like, you know, you know what you... You must have been thinking, like, you never know what you were going to meet just coming around the corner, like, you know? No, absolutely. Like, another time we were in Derry and um, we were playing up for Sean Keenan up there in Derry. He he was like Joe Kyle in, the, in Derry. He was uh, the Derry Protection uh, Association. And uh, we've we done some shows for him up there in the, in the ballroom. Um, what's this called? But big ballroom, anyhow. So we're unloading the gear into the into the hall and um, it's a, at the back of the hall you know and people are queuing up at the front to get in and um, next we hear bang 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 from the roof up on top there and there's a, a soldier's patrol coming down the hill uh, be, beside the stardust and they're coming down the hill and one of them falls and next I hear a big cheer from the crowd going on. I hear more bang, bang, and the troops, troops kind of, uh, I don't know whether they shot back or not. I couldn't distinguish which bang was which. But um, we we ducked behind the, the van anyhow. And uh, that's just one of the things. But we stopped on the bridge going home that night. And uh, we stopped on the bridge and we had... Uh, we had a couple of visitors with us. Some people from, you know, Dublin like to come up and see see what the shows were like. So we had a couple of them. So there was this woman with us, and she was in the front seat with Vincent. And the the uh, the troops got us out on the bridge with the hands up in the air, the usual stuff. And uh, he says to her, "Now out out of the car, ma'am." And she says. Don't tell me what to do in my fucking country. Oh, <laughs> go home to your, go home to where you came from. She obviously had a few sherbets on she board. Had a few, <laughs> she had a few on and no doubt about it. But the point about us was she, the fact that she wasn't getting up, wasn't going to do any, any, any good for us. Yeah. We were left there probably for an hour or more. Yeah. Uh, just at the side of the bridge with our hands up. And next they brought in a kind of an officer guy. And the officer guy, what well, we got here, there, mate? And uh, he says, uh, this lady won't get out of her car, you know, blah, 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 blah. He says, why why are you getting out of the car, ma? <laughs> <laughs> because you've no fucking authority. Oh, <laughs> this is not your country. Oh, jeez. I said, we're here. We're all going to jail. So anyhow, eventually they gave in to her anyhow and they left her there because she was an innocent-looking uh baby-faced girl, you know what I mean? She yeah. got away with it. If we had done it or any of us, we would have certainly ended up either with a bullet or a... Or a, a rifle it, butt across the head. <laughs> yeah. But she got away with it. But we didn't. We were left there. It must have been way over an hour, and I felt every minute of it. I remember going across to see Celtic play, and we used to, because it was so expensive to fly, we used to hire a bus. Yeah. And we used to run a bus from the British Inn. Uh, from for a couple of lads from Blessing, and it'd be about ten of us, twelve of us, maybe, and we'd all go across to St. John Aikens in, in uh, Lockerbie, in his hotel there, the Townhead Hotel. Yeah. And uh, every time we crossed the, over at Newry, crossed into the six counties, the they take us take us off the bus because we all have Celtic tops on or whatever, like you know, and they take mm-hmm. us off the bus. And the first time it happened, a twenty-four pack of 
cans went missing <laughs> off the bus by the time we were put back. I was going, and fuckers are after having our beer. <laughs> so from going, every time after that, we, uh, we'd put on an extra 24 pack or hide it under a seat or something. <laughs> so, we, so, so if they took our beer again, we'd have still have it. But going across there, the first time I was ever in, 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 in Ibrox, and that was the first time I really felt sectarian hatred in, in in mass, like you know, where mm. I'd never. It was a, a New Year's game, and uh, I think Mo Johnson had just signed from Rangers after, for Rangers after he was saying that he he, de- he was going to declare for for Celtic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he switched at the last minute for for whatever reason. He's now known as Judas. So myself and uh, pal Mick Fleming, who you know, was uh, were got, got into the stadium. We you uh, you organised the tickets for me, I think, through Tommy Grant, mm. and we went and picked the tickets up at the stadium in Celtic Park, and we went across. I'd only been in Glasgow once before, and uh, so I didn't know where Ibrox was. So we said, "Look, we'll just hop in a taxi." So we went up and collected the tickets, and I'll never forget. Paul McStay was in the reception, and we said hello to Paul McStay. Mm. It was like my day was made, like you know, and uh, we got a taxi across to. Ibrox, because we didn't know where it was. And uh, it was about two and a half hours before the game. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and and we, we we got out of the taxi, and there was no one around. Like, you know, we were just going... The taxi man said to us, you know, he said, you'd want to be careful around here, lads, you know. So we were going, where we go for a pint? And uh, the only place I could see was a, a pub across the way with big blue front on it. I can't remember the name of it now for the life of me. And Mick said, we go there. And I said, not a chance of not going there. So then this police came up to us and he said, lads, you want to cover it up. You want to be careful around here. He said, uh, you, uh, you'll, uh, you'll get, you'll get yourself into trouble. But so we hung around, we hid sort of away and then they, they cordoned off the, the middle of the road and then Celtic fans started coming in on buses and stuff like that. But going up to the stadium and hearing, you know, the first time walking through into the stadium and and hearing the, we're up to our knees and Fenian blood and all that. Yeah, the, the I was place. actually horrified. Like I'd never come across anything like that before. Because mm. I'd been at a Celtic Rangers match previous to that in Celtic Park and didn't that type of hatred didn't come across from the Celtic side. Like, you know, it was usually a fucking, right, you know, but mm. nothing like that. Like, they, I could tell that they all wanted to kill me if they got their hands on me. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Many, many uh, supporters were killed, you know. And I remember mm. I wrote a song about it. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, there was a terrible danger there. And, you know. There still is. Yeah. And, still is. and, and that's, that's a shame, you know. And they tried to blame it on... on the Celtic side, which is totally and completely wrong because, you know, they've never killed any Celtics or Rangers supporters. But many Celtic supporters were killed and injured mm. because of their shirt or because of anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's frightening when you're over there sometimes. Um, Anyhow, we'll be over there again, please, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But... Uh, your your first time over there, well, maybe not your first time over there, but your first time at a Celtic Rangers match was a unique experience in terms of uh, you went to a League Cup semi-final in September 1993 yeah. with myself and Mick Fleming and Celtic were playing Rangers mm-hmm. in Ibrox and it was the first time, I think, I believe, that Ibrox was 50-50. Mm. And normally the Celtic fans would take up the broom loan and 
which would be the, behind the goals. Uh, as you're looking on TV, would be left to right. We were to the, the stand. Where we were in the. I can't remember the name of the stand. What was the name? Yeah, of the stand? It, was, it was a big stand there. Yeah, it? it was. It was opposite the. I think it's called the Govan Stand. Actually, I think that's what it was called yeah. back then. And uh, that experience of going to Ivor, I'll never forget your face when you walked in. You know, just a, of feeling that that that. Uh, tension in there you know and just that a unique occasion and it's funny I was only reading up about how and this is how, how unbelievably the thing that set up for Scottish football they had a draw uh, with the SFA and um, Liam Brady was managing Celtic at the time and Liam Brady was out of the country uh, watching Celtic's opponents uh, play and Joe Jordan stood in and Walter Smith, so they did a toss, and whoever the toss was going to get the home advantage because Hamden was getting done up. So Joe Jordan won the toss, and your man from the SFA then said, Oh no, that's just to see who gets the call. <laughs> <laughs> and if it doesn't work out this so, time, we go. So they tossed it again, and Walter Smith won, and, and it was the game was in, in, in Ibrox. Unbelievable. Like yeah, just, yeah, well, that's, there was always that. Uh, uh, Prejudiced against uh, Celtic with, among the refereeing community. Yeah, that's still that is, way. Still yeah. is. You yeah. can still see it in some of the decisions, you know. Yeah. Shame, isn't it, that, uh, you know, people see that's the problem. Um, they never accepted the Irish community in Glasgow or Western Scotland. And, uh, you know, they were always looked down upon and they were deprived of the best jobs, of the best schools, the best housing. Similar to what happened in North of Ireland. So that that hatred grew up around, you know, these anti-Catholic uh, ideas. And, you know, a friend of mine married this Protestant girl and uh, I had a chat with her there some time ago, maybe four or five years ago. And she said, you know, she said, my mother, my mother hated Catholics. And I said, why, why, why does she hate Catholics? She, I asked her, why do you hate Catholics? She said, I don't know. We always hate them. <laughs> so it's, just the thing. <laughs> it's just we always hate Catholics. So how can you justify something yeah. with that kind of an answer? But that's inbuilt yeah. there that, you know, you, you hate Catholics. That still is. Like I've seen there on Facebook that uh, some Irish club in I don't know whether it's in Glasgow. I'm not too sure exactly where it was, but they they keep getting targeted with uh, graffiti or stickers being put on all tags. Oh, yeah, all tags are targets. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, that, I know what that is. That's yeah. uh, that was the Margaret Skinner Centre in Copebridge. All oh, right, I played there. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the Margaret Skinner, she was uh, as as probably know the great uh, heroine of the the uh, 1916 Rising. She was the only woman injured in the 1960 Rising. actually wrote a song about her, which you can have a look at or get up there and, uh, on, the, on the internet somewhere. We'll it's stick called, it on at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, it's Margaret Skinner. But she, she, she was a heroine in many, many ways because uh, she, she wanted to... Uh, she was a sharpshooter. And she, like, they were given... Uh, jobs to come on them on as messengers and going here and there, which he did. But then she asked uh, Michael Mellon, uh, could she go up on the roof and start shooting? And he allowed her up there and she went and she shot for whatever time. And then there, she had this idea of moving from one place, from the College of Surgeons 
to the hotel and the side there for uh, strategic reasons. And he thought it was a good idea. So she and another member of the of the group went across. And as we went across, she took an injury. She ended up in a hospital, which was just at the top of Stephen's Green at the time. And uh, it was St. Vincent's Hospital then. And uh, she she ended up there. But she was lucky to get away with it. And uh, she she had uh, the nuns in there and everything else kind of protect her from the British. And uh, she eventually got back to Glasgow. So it's that centre. Wow, that's mm. a good story. Yeah. I didn't know that. Obviously, heard the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're getting near the our time. We're at fifty yeah, minutes okay. there now, so yeah. I guess we'll sign off and uh, we'll listen to Margaret Skinner. Okay, see you again, then, folks. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to show your support for James McLean. Absolutely.
Yeah, so that's Margaret Skinner there being performed live with the Celtic Symphony Orchestra and my sister Siobhan on vocals. Um, so, great song. And thanks again for listening. And uh, if you like what you heard, don't forget to share with your friends. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and keep up to date with what we're doing on Twitter. And uh, we'll be back on Tuesday with an episode of the podcast called Down in the Mines. So, slán and keep safe.